The Chicago Bulls, yes, this is another basketball introduction. The Chicago Bulls, a basketball team, for those of you who might not know, they won six championships while Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen were with them on the team, if my information is correct. Three of those six championships were won with the help of a man named Dennis Rodman, who was one of the bad boys of basketball in the 1990s. In the NBA, he was known for rebounds. Outside the NBA, he was known for a whole lot of things. But in the NBA, he, he was known for rebounds, that is, getting the ball after the shot had been missed in a really physical manner. That's why he's called one of the bad boys of basketball. And he was really good at what he did. Regarding how Rodman joined the Bulls in 1995, well, the Bulls were looking for just the right guy to help Jordan and Pippen and the Bulls as an organization win more championships. And even though no one really liked Rodman, the, Bull knew, the Bulls knew that he was the right guy, right? Their assessment, as we know from history, proved true because after bringing, he on, after bringing him on, he helped them win three more championships. One thing that's interesting about Rodman and Jordan and Pippen is that Rodman says that these three years when he was on the team, he didn't have a single conversation with Jordan and Pippen off the court. Not one, he says. He basically thought it wasn't necessary. It didn't matter. He was brought there to do a job, and that job was to play basketball in the way that he played basketball. His job was not to converse, but to help the Bulls win. When I heard this recently in an interview, I thought it was weird. Like, how does that work? But as the interview went on, it sort of made more sense, right? How did they survive this, you know, relationship dysfunction to go on and win? It's because Rodman, Jordan, and Pippen had the exact same goal. That is to win. They set aside personality differences, and there were many. Those things didn't matter. They set, they set aside personal issues. All things set aside in order to be champions. It's really impressive. Success for the Bulls required the individuals on the team to set their eyes, to fix their eyes on that one goal. To win. Now, friends, in, if keeping the goal in front of the team is important for basketball, right? It is just basketball. The glory of championships will soon fade away. The trophies will soon lay in the dust and become dust itself, right? If it's important for basketball, how much more important it is for us as First Baptist Church, the church of Jesus Christ who deals with things eternal, not temporal like basketball, things eternal, how much more important is it for us to keep God's goal in front of us as we labor in this race of faith? In today's passage, we have God's goal for church unity. And what is that unity? Or what is this goal? Well, it's something that the book of Romans has been speaking a lot about. It's the glory of God in Jesus Christ among the nations. Let me pre repeat that again. This is sort of like the big idea of the sermon. What is this grand goal? It is the glory of God in Jesus Christ among the nations. That's the goal for our church unity. From our passage today, we see that this is the big picture goal. 
that really should undergird all of our labors as we work towards unity in this particular local church. And, you know, this intro is a bit of a throwaway intro. I'm not going to say how we don't have to have conversations in order to, you know, reach, you know, the final resting place. It's not my point. My point is just to hold the goal right in front of us so that way we can push forward in all of our labors. Join with me in turning to Romans chapter 15. And we are in verses 1 to 13. If you're using one of those black Bibles right there in front of you, it's found on page 949. 949. Now, as we've been walking through the book of Romans, we are coming to its end. We're coming to its end. We can see it. I, at least on my page, I see Romans chapter 16, the end. We've been in Romans for a year and a half, basically. And I pray that it's been a joy for your own soul, food for your own soul, as it has been for mine. It's been wonderful to walk through and study Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome in the first century. He's writing around the mid-50s A.D., this is, this is, you know, Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 13. It's an immensely practical section in the book of Romans, much like Romans 12 to 16, which is the second half of Romans. And all, and this practical implications, right, these application points, they really flow from everything that he's already said in Romans 1 to 11. That is an explanation of the gospel. So you kind of have Romans 1 to 11, you have the gospel foundation, and then 12 to 16, you have some of the, how, how are the, what are the fruits that we should be bearing as Christians as we live out our lives trusting in Jesus Christ? In Romans 1 to 11, Paul explained that Christians are those who have been saved by God's sovereign grace, freely given to sinners in Jesus Christ, even though we were the ones who had rebelled against the creator, God himself. In Christ, we know what he was doing. According to Romans, he was gathering for himself a, a people united a people who love him, trust him, and submit to his loving rule, and that they would be saved. And this is what he's doing in the church, as it is to be filled with his Christians, or the membership of the church. Now, if Christians are God's people who have Christ's very spirit inside of us, if we are, to use a different analogy, citizens of God's kingdom, if we are children of the Father, if we willingly, gladly, lovingly submit to Christ's rule, how then are we to live as an embassy of God's heavenly kingdom here on earth? It's a beautiful word picture, isn't it? An embassy of God's heavenly kingdom. We've tasted the goodness of God, right, as Christians. Christ has exercised his dominion over Satan and sin, and so we are now free from the tyranny of sin. He has bonded us together with him and so we have his heart his spirit right he takes out our stony hearts and gives us a heart of flesh where we have christ's spirit inside of us and so he unites us to himself and he used, unites us too to one another all through jesus christ but as we know living together can be difficult living together can be difficult and some of you guys might feel that even right now you know that you're facing disagreement you know you might need to be reconciled with the very person you're sitting next to in the pew, and so you know that the potential of division is real. You know that we all need to heed and to hear Paul's call to move towards unity. That's where our passage is so useful. We've seen the call to unity in the past, right, the past two weeks, but here today our passage gives us 
sort of like a nitro boost of encouragement to keep us as a team pushing forward in our long-distance race of faith together. To help us as a church endure to the end, our passage holds out for us the grand goal of Christian unity. Once again, it is the glory of God among the nations. Look there at Romans chapter 15, and I'll go ahead and read our passage for today, verses 1 to 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God in his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. If you're taking notes, here are my three points for this sermon. Point number one, God's call for church unity, which is kind of like a recap. And then secondly, God's purpose for church unity. And then third, God's glorious faithfulness affirmed in church unity. And I'll go ahead and repeat those points as we uh, come along to them. So point number one, Let's look at God's call for church unity. This is in verses 1 to 4 here. Now, again, we've been looking at unity in the church since the beginning of chapter 14, and in some ways, all the way since Romans chapter 12. And in our passage, Paul the Apostle is wrapping things up in a very climactic way. We get, we'll get to the climax there in 5 to 7. But when it comes to God's call for church unity, Paul reminds readers that the, uh, of his call there again in verses 1 and 2, and I'll reread that. Go ahead and look there. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. We see our obligation here to bear with the burdens of the weak. Now, it's true, if if you're a Christian here and you consider yourself a strong Christian, you know, we all certainly have the obligation to bear with the weak in general, whether it be physically weak, emotionally weak, etc., etc., spiritually weak. But here, when he says that the strong have an obligation to bear with the weak, he's actually talking to them about a certain situation that was going on. And, and if you're visiting with us, let me just recap this for you. The situation that he was writing into was one where some of the Jewish Christians still thought that they had to obey Old Testament and Jewish rules and regulations that are found in the Old Testament, right? Refraining from certain types of meats that God had declared unclean. And God was just making a point there. He was making a point that I want my people to be holy unto the Lord, to be different. And he laid out certain laws that help the people actually be different from everyone else around them. That's what the point was for those Old Testament rules and regulations. 
They also maybe thought that they had to celebrate certain festivals. It's referred to as these days in Romans chapter 14. And they thought faithfully following Christ meant that they were required to do these things as, as Christians, not to earn salvation. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, like, what, is, what does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus? And they still thought that, that they were required to do these things as a mark of faithfulness in walking the path of faith. Now, in reality, they were not required to do this by Christ. They were not required to do this by Christ. Christ himself was a fulfillment of all of the Old Testament law, which is what Romans discusses. And God declared that all foods were declared clean, which is why Paul says there in 1414, go ahead and look there. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. All right, so clearly, right, you're talking about those foods there. All foods are now clean. Well, friends, these Jewish Christians, you know, if we put ourselves in their position, we could imagine the sort of difficulty it was to, to learn to walk after Christ. They become Christians. Now they're learning to walk after Christ. Previously, they had to, you know, they, they were to obey these rules and regulations that they had. Again, not to, not to earn faith, but these were legitimate laws that God had given in the Old Testament. And now they're having to learn to walk in the freedom that is in Jesus Christ. But because of their God, but because their God-given consciences were misinformed, right? God gives us a conscience. It's kind of like the inbuilt compass that helps us find right from wrong. Um, and we need now to inform that conscience according to his words. Not that we determine right from wrong. It's that we are to inform our consciences and our consciences help us find that true north, so to speak. Well, these weaker Christians, these former, these Jewish Christians, well, their consciences were misinformed. They felt that they should obey the Old Testament food laws, even though they were free not to. Paul says that they are weak. They are bound to the things not required of Christ. They are bound to things not clearly implied by Christ's teachings, all by their conscience. Now, in present day, Again, so, uh, so that we don't think that the situation is too far from us, right? Th this is us. This is us as well. I might feel like, I, like faithfully following Jesus in my own heart means I should not buy Jordans. Or if you're, you know, if you're into streetwear. Or if you're into, let's say, bags, you know, Chanel bags or Manolos if you're into heels or whatever it might be popular today. We can see how people might come to that conclusion Right, if you just imagine if I, in my heart, feel that way because, man, if when I look back, when I used to buy Jordans, let's say, when I was a non-Christian, man, I was so vain. And the only reason why I wanted those $110 shoes when I was 12 years old was that I wanted everyone to look at me and think how cool I was. I wanted everybody to glory in me. I wanted everyone to worship me in some ways like I was God. That's why someone might buy shoes or whatever to fit in. So that right there, you see that association, the association of owning Jordans for myself with the sin of living as a non-Christian. Right, we, we can understand that. But then as we become Christians, th that association still sort of it, it, it continues. And we need to learn, well, what does it look like for me to faithfully follow Jesus? And some of the weaker Christians, right, we might think, oh, it's better for me not to. I shouldn't. God doesn't want me to, even though God has never said that. Well, that, that's, that's a modern-day situation. The stronger in faith, well, they know that God had never given such commands, let's say in this Jewish situation, to the New Testament church, whether by explicit command or implication. 
They were free to eat whatever they wanted. So just imagine now, again, as we think about our own unity and labor towards it. You see how these differences of conclusions, differences of issues of conscience, could lead to division. In Romans chapter 14, we know that both sides were judging, somehow judging one another. So with the aims to preserve unity, Paul says there in 14 verse 1, look there, welcome one another as in verse 3, God has welcomed his spiritual family. We're not to judge them because God himself has judged. That's what he lays out there in, in chapter 14. Now, of course, the potential for division and the need to preserve church unity is for us as well. We have similar issues of conscience, as I just mentioned. One Christian feels that faithfully following God means not doing this, not doing that. Whereas one Christian knows that, no, God's not given us any sort of command. But in reality, we are free. So how, how exactly do we get along? How does the weak and the strong learn to get along and love one another for the sake of God's glory? Paul places the majority of the responsibility on the strong calling them to move towards the weak in love, an effort to see them built up in the faith and strengthened. He says, don't flaunt your freedoms in their faces. That's what we looked at last week. And don't pressure them to go against their consciences. But commit yourself to building them up. And finally, we arrive at verse number one of our chapter, speaking to the strong, sort of wrapping things up again. Look what Paul says there in verse one. We who are the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. If you consider yourself stronger, what do you think of your obligation to bear with? You have an obligation to bear with. Now, already, if you can already think of being annoyed by somebody, you know, maybe you're thinking, oh, I got to bear with this guy. Your eyes are already rolling. You hear obligation to bear with the weak, and you say, fine, I'll just bear with them and all of their weird and inconvenient views which hamper my Christian freedom. Well, I assure you, friends, that that is not the kind of obligation to bear with that he is calling for. That kind of obligation to bear with the failings of the weak doesn't actually promote unity at all. It just has the appearance of unity. It just pretends to be unity. It does not at all reflect a heart that actually wants to move towards others in love for their upbuilding. That kind of bearing with has more in common with, you know, immature children bearing with their other, the annoyances of their sibling. Fine, I'll give her a hug. Or fine, I'll share my candy with them. Now, hugs might be traded, candy might be shared, but there is no heart. It's just the appearance of unity. But this Romans 15 obligation to bear with is so incredibly different. It's marked by not cold tolerance but by an urgency to minister aid. It's more, there's obligation, right, for Christians. We're supposed to joyfully take on this obligation. And this obligation is supposed to be inspiring toward, for us as we move towards other people, not enslaving. So if you have any idea of obligation as something that enslaves, something you have to do, and now you're disgruntled, bearing with the annoyances of your brother and sister, that's not what he's talking about here. Uh, a practical example here, think of the most uh, faithful of doctors right? They joyfully undertake certain obligations. For example, in 1948, the World Medical Association adopted this declaration, right? And all who were admitted into the medical profession needed to pledge the following. I, 
solemnly pledge to consecrate my life to the service of humanity. That's inspiring to me. Forget, forget for a moment being a Christian, right? If you are a human being who loves other human beings, all of a sudden that pledge, that oath, that obligation is inspiring. I solemnly pledge to consecrate my life to the service of humanity. I will practice my profession with conscience and dignity. The health of my patient will be my first consideration. I will respect the secrets that are confided in me, and on and on and on. Now again, the most faithful of doctors see this obligation, this new obligation as they're entering into the medical profession as a joy. I can't wait to do that. They're bound by it. And now I get to do it for the rest of my life. Can you imagine the doctor saying, oh, again, you're dying, inconveniencing me, and I've solemnly pledged to consecrate my life to the service of you. Fine, I'll go ahead and do it. You're not going to go and see them. So we understand your obligation is supposed to inspire us as individuals. It's supposed to inspire us as we move towards one another, and we all get to rejoice in this obligation we have together. Christians, moving towards other Christians, It's like we are saying, we solemnly pledge to consecrate our lives to the upbuilding of our brothers and sisters. I will practice my Christian faith towards others with conscience and dignity according to what God says. The health of my brothers and sisters will be my first consideration after the Lord. I will respect my brothers and sisters and the things that are confided in me. We get this, we understand this, right? The obligation to bear with is to be marked by an urgency to minister aid. And we're helped by looking at Galatians chapter 2, where Paul says, bear with one another's burdens. He says that there. So if you are if you tend towards cold toleration of the weaker Christian, note he does not say bear with that other person because they are the burden. He says, bear with one another's burdens, right? He he wants us to help come alongside and shoulder the load and carry the burdens such that the weaker have a partner to carry it with. And doing so builds them up. We see this in verse 2. That's the great aim here. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. He's not talking about pleasing man here. We already know that that's sin. Paul says it's sin in, in Galatians. We know that. He's not talking about pleasing other people as if they are gods. No, that would be more like worshiping man. He's talking about pleasing them for their good in the faith, to build him up in the faith. That's what he's aiming at here. He says, bear with one another's burdens and shoulder the load. Help build them up for their sake. Friends, this is just like Jesus' love, isn't it? He loves and sacrifices for the good of his people. His is a love that moves towards us so that we might be brought towards him. Christ moves towards us in love to see us built up, to see us forgiven of our sins, to see us healed. The gospel is all about the love of God that moves towards sinners who don't deserve it. We know that man had rebelled against God, our one and only creator, where he created us to be in a perfect relationship with him and then drew near to us. Man basically said, we don't care about you, just leave us alone. And so we rebelled against God. We became gods unto ourselves. Romans chapter 1, that's what it talks about. It talks about how we traded in the glory of God. No, thank you, God. I don't care about you, God. Instead, we chose to worship the created stuff and even our very own selves, the punishment of which is judgment, even in eternal hell. 
as that sin is treason. God is the only king. And so to set up our own, our own chair of kingship is treason. But again, we know that here Christ's love is a love that moves towards us. God in love sent Christ towards us on a mission to rescue the very rebels who rebelled against him. He lived the perfect life that we should have, right? The standard was perfection to be in fellowship with God, but we sinned against him. So God says, okay, I know you guys can't do it. So I'm going to send you Christ, my eternal son, to do what you can't do. And then I'm going to send him so that he would die on the cross so that you wouldn't have to bear the punishment on yourself for all those who repent of their sins and believe on him. On the cross, he dies the death we should have, bearing the wrath that we deserved. Three days later, he gets up from the grave. God is satisfied. Wrath is poured out. And now all of his people will not experience judgment, but will receive welcome, love, forgiveness. All of that. You see Christ in, in God sending Jesus Christ. It is God moving in love towards us, even in his call to repent and believe. He imagined the parent who's far off never calls the children to turn around to turn away from danger. We would all think that that's like parental malpractice. But even in God's call, Jesus' call to turn from your sins, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, even in the call to turn from your sins is evidence of God's love for you. So let me encourage you, turn from your sins and believe on him and you will be saved, reconciled to God, forgiven of your sin, adopted into his family, and you will know right standing with God. Salvation doesn't come from anything from us, anything in us, but only from the sovereign grace of God. Praise the Lord for that. As Christ moves towards us, note there in verse 3, Christ's love does not seek to please himself. Christ's love does not seek to please himself. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Here, Paul quotes Psalm 69, verse 9, and he applies it to Jesus Christ as we see Christ's loving self-sacrifice. God the Father was reproached, right? He's just pulling this verse from uh, the book of Psalms and applying it to Jesus. We know in the book of Psalms, David, David and Israel, they were reproached. God was reproached by the nations who didn't believe. Uh, and so where they reproached God, Christ comes along and bears those reproaches on the cross. He endured the cross and the, scorn, and the scorn, all of that joyfully, Hebrews 12, 2 says. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He is the prime example of the one who forsakes his own pleasures and rights in order to advance the honor of God, not to selfishly please himself, but to please God, to please others. Christian, we are to love like Jesus Christ, moving towards one another, not seeking to please ourselves, but to please others for their upbuilding in Jesus Christ. We are to love and sacrifice for the good of Christ's people. You know, in this idea of getting frustrated with maybe those we are partnered with, you know, we think about laboring for unity. For whatever reason, I get the picture of two people running a three-legged race. How many of you guys have ever ran a three-legged race? Just want to make sure people know what I'm talking about. Okay, not everybody. Um, <clears throat> so when you run a three-legged race, you got two people, right, running side by side. And you're supposed to run in the same direction. Just imagine if you guys are all partnered up with different people and we're all running to, to reach the finish line, right? It's called a three-legged race because with your partner standing side by side, you're actually taped at the ankle. 
you're taped at the ankle. That's why it's called a three-legged race. You got the two outside legs and then, you know, the, the two legs that are bound together, which make one uh, leg, basically. The challenge comes in being together, doesn't it? And it's a hilarious scene if you've ever played it. You know, I'm sure, you know, maybe your work, your work situation, you want to cultivate team unity or whatever just to learn each other's personalities. You know, you come up with these silly games. And uh, it's a hilarious scene because inevitably there's going to be that one team where that one partner is just like, what are you doing? Like they're on the ground literally like, get up. The finish line is there like you are, you know, a moron or something like that. Their partner just doesn't know what to do. And that person is, once again, inevitably frustrated or just simply giving up, whatever, I'm done. Like, just lay on the ground. We're done. We're just losing here. It's game over. To win the game takes togetherness. It takes coordination. It takes teamwork. It takes patience. And without a shadow of a doubt, maybe the one who has done it before and who's used to it, they've done it a little longer than the the newbie, is going to have to slow down a little bit in order for that other partner to catch up. In order for the partnership to work out, the one who's done it longer is going to have to stop and explain it with patience, working with this other person. Now, of course, as we apply the metaphor to the Christian life and the Christian church, our goal is not to beat others in the church. Our our goal is really to help each other cross the finish line. It's like God has assigned, he himself knows with his infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge, knows all of the weaknesses of every single one of us and knows all of the strengths of every single one of us. And in order to slow the strong down and then to speed up the weak and to help the weak, he pairs us together in some ways and says, I, this is going to be a perfect match. So whoever you are looking at it and thinking like, what are you doing? Right? That's God's perfect match for you. So that you would help one another cross the finish line, bearing each other's burdens in the Christian life. And of course, in the church, it's not just pairs. It's not just two individuals connected together. It's all of the body's members are joined together in heart, mind, and spirit. And so you can just get the, you can just get the picture, right? We're all sort of taped together, and the ones who are closer to seeing the Lord are almost there, but they're being taped to all of us. And the ones that God is calling unto himself, well, he's linking him, him up with all the rest of us so that we all might reach and cross the finish line where we will worship Jesus together, face to face, without sin. Let me just stop for a moment and note that Paul expects that these Roman Christians would actually be committed to each other in local churches. In local churches. The Christian life is not designed to be lived alone, but designed to be lived out in local churches, right? I mean, we see these commands here, like love one another, right? And I'm pretty sure none of us really thinks, well, I'm actually linked in in a certain way where, you know, to my other brothers and sisters in Nepal. And I'm supposed to love them in the same way that I love Christians right here in this same church. So, you know, he's talking about real local churches here. He's talking about First Baptist Church in, in many ways. The Christian life is not designed to be lived alone, but designed to be lived in local churches where you are committed to others for their upbuilding and where other people are committed to your upbuilding. It's in church membership where you can fulfill Christ's commands to love one another, to bear each other's burdens and sorrows, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, to slow down if we are the strong, to bear with the failings, the struggles, and the burdens of the weak. 
So if you, are a, if you call yourself a Christian, but you are not committed to any local church, right? you realize that you are a player without a team. You realize that you are a sheep outside of a flock or fold. You are a brick outside of the building, which, friends, is not the way God intended things to be. Now, church membership does not save you. But it is, you know, if you are, it is something that Christ fully intends that every Christian would experience. So let me encourage you, right, if you are, if you are a Christian and you're not a member of church, let me encourage you to attend uh, Membership Matters, March 23rd, 9 to 12. And there we're going to look at, well, what is this thing called church membership? What, what does the church believe? How should we live? And I'm going to make a case for church membership there. So let me encourage you to attend that. We're going to lay out a case for church membership. And really here, it's in church membership where we see where we can be committed to one another's upbuilding. It's crucial, as it's reflected here in Romans chapters 12 all the way to 16. So that's point number one, God's call for church unity. God's call for church unity. Let's now look at point number two, God's purpose for church unity. God's purpose for church unity. This is in verses five to seven. And these verses here are a prayer uh, of Paul's for the church. And really, it's a prayer that God himself wanted for the Roman Christians. I'll go ahead and read that. He says there, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I say that these are God's purposes in this prayer because God inspired Paul to write. And therefore, what Paul prays, and we see his priorities right there, God's priorities, and so they should become our priorities. Verses 5 and seven, five to 7, here we see all the purposes for what he's written in 14 to 15, and, and in very many ways, um, what he's written even back through Romans chapter 12. You see the immediate purpose, right? He prays for harmony with one another. And I'm not going to belabor that point. We've been looking at that for the last couple of weeks. But I want to draw your attention to the ultimate purpose for living in harmony. What is it according to the passage? Go ahead and look there. Look at the passage. The grammar is clear. The translation is clear. He says, the ultimate purpose is the glory of God. Why does he want this diverse church to be united? He says clearly there in verse 6, that together, grand purpose statement, that together the goal is, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's so helpful. He just states it right there. What's our grand purpose in all of our labors? It's right there, the glory of God, that we together with one voice. It's interesting. The emphasis is the togetherness and the one voice. This is like different people with big-time differences and different issues and different conscience issues coming together to do the one thing that we failed to do in the beginning. Think Romans chapter 1. Think about the entry of sin into the world. You remember what sinful man did in the beginning? Romans chapter 1 tells us, right, the trading in of the glory of God for created things, even though we deserved, even though God deserved all worship for being loving creator, we worshiped ourselves. We rebelled and failed to live as God designed us to live, and so we earned God's just judgment, as I mentioned earlier. But what has God done in his grace? He saves those who could not save themselves. God sent his son to be for us what we could never be, that is, righteous. And so he is our righteousness, which is what Romans speaks about. He also sends Christ to do for us what we can never do on our own. 
That is, deliver us from the tyranny, the power of sin and death and Satan. On the cross, he destroys sin and death and Satan and receives the punishment that we deserve. So in saving us, Christ builds for himself a people for his name to display his glory. He reconciles us to God and reconciles us to one another. Did you notice there in verse 5 that the harmony we are to experience is in accord with Christ Jesus and all that he has done for us and all that he desires of us? Where we were not a people, he makes us to be a people designed to live to the praise of his glorious grace. Now we are, as verse 7 says, to welcome one another with a united voice glorifying God, all to the glory of God. So again, there, there you see the ultimate goal, God's glory among the nations. So friends, again, if you go back to that three-legged race, you see, Christian, that if all you ever have your eyes on is how you run your own race, if all you ever do is complain and grumble about this guy or this gal that you so happen to be stuck with because he slows you down or inconveniences you, friend, have you ever stopped to consider that maybe the Christian life is not ultimately about you? That God's plan of redemption throughout the ages into eternity is not ultimately about you? But instead, at the center of God's plan of redemption is what he himself is doing among his people, of which you are one. And when it comes to being stuck with others, have you ever considered that by being linked to others, yes, it is true, you might be slowed down, but that it is God's plan that you might speed others up. The strong are to help the weak. In this case, the Gentile Christians were to help these weaker Jewish Christians, and both sides were to move towards one another in love for the glory of God. Can you imagine if either said said either side said no, we're not going to do that? The Jewish Christians refusing to love their Gentile Christians. Can you imagine the church choosing to split over cultural issues, conscience issues, ethnic issues, race issues, or rich and poor issues, whatever issues? What happens when that's the case is that God's glory among the nations is diminished. God's glory among the nations is diminished. But instead, we are to aim to the big goal of glorifying God among the nations. This brings us to our final point, point number three. God's glorious faithfulness affirmed in church unity. This is in verses 9 to 12. Our togetherness as a church, our loving unity, affirms in front of the eyes of the world God's glorious faithfulness. Let me repeat that again. Our togetherness as a church, our loving unity as a church, affirms in front of the eyes of the world God's glorious faithfulness. It affirms to the world that God is, without a shadow of a doubt, who he says he is, and that he will do all that he has said, all that he has promised. It affirms and testifies to this because God said he would save sinners no matter their background, all because of his grace in Jesus Christ. Right? By his grace, according to Revelation 5.13, he says his people from every tribe and tongue and nation would gather before his throne and together in one voice proclaim, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. God's grace in Jesus Christ is the great leveler, the great leveler 
because those who think that they have some sort of ethnic superiority that earns them some sort of standing before God are leveled because they realize that nothing will give them standing before God apart from turning to Jesus Christ. Those who think of that their own righteousness, right, their own morality gives them some sort of standing before God. Well, in the face of God's grace in Jesus Christ, they too are leveled. They are humbled and rebuked knowing that there is no righteousness out of self that can give standing before God. No amount of wealth, no amount of success, no amount of beauty. Instead, sinners, all alike in their sin, in the face of Jesus Christ, are shown the beauties of God's grace. That's what God wants proclaimed to the ends of the earth. God's plan to build a people on the cornerstone of Christ has been God's plan throughout the ages from from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Remember that in Genesis, God promised Abraham that one from his line would be a blessing to the nations, bringing deliverance and salvation to the ends of the world. Galatians 6 says that that line, that person from the line of Abraham is Jesus Christ. In the same vein, look there at 15.8. 15.8. Why did God send Christ? He sent Christ to the Jews first to do two things. Number one, to show God's truthfulness to his promises his truthfulness to his promises. Look there. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. And then the second thing is to confirm or to legally verify the promises given to the patriarchs. That is the Old Testament promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to all of Israel. We can continue on in verse number eight. In order, right, Christ became a servant wise to show God's truthfulness. When he talks about the circumcised there, he's talking about to the Jews first. But this says there, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, right? Those two things there. You see that in, in confirming God's promise, or sorry, truthfulness, that proclaims God's character to the watching world. God is true to his covenant promises. And then in number two, as he confirms, he legally verifies the promises given to the patriarchs. Well, it proclaims to the watching world that he will do just as he has said. Praise God. And why did God want to fulfill his promises in Jesus Christ? Let's finish up there. Verse 9. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The sending of Christ is confirmation that salvation really is for all who call upon his name. It's Romans 10, 13. And that God is that gracious and his mercy is really that wide. This has been God's plan throughout the ages. This is what all of those Old Testament quotes refer to there. We can spend a lot of time looking at this, but you know, looking at it from a 20,000-foot view, we see there the opening quotation from Psalm 19. Possibly the quotation is from 2 Samuel 22, which just reproduces the same verse. Even David knew that God's name would be praised, King David of Israel. He knew that God's name would be praised among not only among the Jews, but among the Gentiles. It implies that the Gentiles too are going to be brought into salvation to praise God as well. And really the whole Old Testament affirms this. You look there at verse 10. And here Paul really is taking a sampling from the different portions of the Old Testament. In my opinion, really proving that this is God's plan throughout the ages. Verse 10 is a quotation from the law of Moses. That is the first five books of the Old Testament. You see there, look there at verse 10. And again, it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. He's talking about non-Jews. That's basically all of us, right? bringing them in together into the people of God. And he says there, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. 
And then in verse 11, this is a verse from the writings, another section of the Old Testament, a verse from the writings. Go ahead and look there. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And then he has a verse from the prophets speaking about what will be, speaking directly about Jesus, the root of Jesse, or this branch of Jesse. This one will come out of the stump. You get the idea of this branch. Root can be translated branch. The root of Jesse, the branch of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. So you have writings, evidences from the law, evidence from the writings, evidence from the prophets, and all of it says that throughout the ages, this has been God's plan to unite a mixed people together for his glory. Church, again, to conclude here with conclusion over this last like seven minutes or so, church, I, I hope you know that together in our life together, we have opportunities and a responsibility to testify to the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ as we love those whom God is calling to himself. We've talked a lot about laboring towards unity in the church despite our sin, and here he's talking about our differences. But you know what we are reminded about our labors, according to our passage? We are reminded that in all of our labors, we are supposed to depend upon God ultimately. In the words of Psalm 127.1, If the Lord does not build the house, the workers labor in vain. Did you notice what Paul starts off praying there in verse 5? Turn over to 15.5. After writing all of these verses and chapters on laboring for church unity and harmony, encouraging us towards, you know, uh, encouragement, what does he pray for? It's interesting. Paul prays that God would give us the very things he tells us to work towards. If you look there in verse 5, actually start there in verse 4, for whatever was written in former days, right, this, the Old Testament written uh, and is fulfilled in Jesus, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now look what he says, may the God of endurance and of encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul prays that he would give us the very things he tells us to work towards. Harmony that leads towards the nations glorifying God. So church, we know, we all know that we're going to face difficulties, disagreements, potential for division, discord. Again, some of you guys might be feeling this. The answer is not only to work towards these things in obedience, but also to pray that God would give the very things we work towards. As Augustine, the 4th century Christian pastor said, God, command what you will and grant what you command. Our passage reminds us that we ought to be praying for a number of things, right? Pray that God, the God of endurance and encouragement, would help us endure. Because sometimes it's hard to love one another. And if we know each other, and if we know ourselves well enough, sometimes we are hard to be loved. Pray that he would encourage us as we look to Jesus Christ, our prime example. Pray that we would aim for unity for God's purposes and definitely not our own. Pray that God's reasons would be on the forefront of your minds and hearts so that we would joyfully seek to build up each other for the glory of God. That's what we see here in verses 5 to 7. Okay, now let's move even further. How do we make his prayer our prayer? Well, it's just, just by walking through the prayer. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. God, we know that that is hard. I confess my sin to you. 
sometimes I don't want to endure. And sometimes I am genuinely discouraged and, or I discourage others. It's hard to live in such harmony with one another, even my fellow brothers and sisters here at First Baptist Church. But Lord, we pray that we would do these things in accord with Christ Jesus. Not our own wills be done, but Christ Jesus' will would be done here in First Baptist Church. Lord, we know that we are to together with one voice glorify God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes, Lord, I don't, my voice moves towards criticizing others. Lord, we know that it's hard, this togetherness, and sometimes I, don't, I turn up to church and I don't want to sing these songs about unity with my other brothers and sisters that I'm angry at. Lord, grant me grace, grant me repentance, that I might confess my sin freely, that I might seek reconciliation so that together the most important things would be on the forefront of our minds, the glory of God among the nations. That's how we make Paul's prayer our prayer. If you don't know how to do this, feel free. You can meet up with Oscar, myself, PK, any of the elders. A lot of these Christians here, we've, we've, we've worked through what does it look like to make the prayers in Scripture our own prayers as we want the priorities of God, the priorities of Paul to become our own priorities. To conclude here, here's the goal, the grand goal, the glory of God among the nations. We've seen over the last few weeks God's call for church unity. We have seen God's purpose for church unity, that is his glory. We have seen also how every local church's unity affirms the God's glorious faithfulness to the nations. Friends, you realize that having a rock-solid trust in the faithfulness of God, in his character, and all that he has said and promised, we have hope for the Christian life. In light of the truths of God and his promises, Paul writes there in verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Spirit you may abound in hope. This is hope in the fact that one day Christ will fulfill all of his promises and that together we will all be gathered up in Jesus Christ, worshiping him on that final day when he brings final salvation to bear. And on that day we see the Lord face to face and worship him together with one voice. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we know that there are so many different reasons why one, why a church could divide. We know a lot of these issues are very real, very real in our country, whether we have issues about social standing, issues about social class, issues about race. Lord, we pray that First Baptist Church and every gospel-preaching, gospel-believing church would be a faithful embassy and outpost of your heavenly kingdom where we see the great leveler that is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would jettison all notions of any sort of partisan Christianity where some people might think Christianity is for these people or those, this group of people. Or we pray that we would be reminded, even as we fellowship together, people from different cultures, different backgrounds and ethnicities, different consciences even, different opinions. We pray, Lord, that here at First Baptist Church, Lord, we would be a place where other people are welcomed because they see the grace of God in Jesus Christ as the great unifier of sinners. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to display your marvelous glory to the nations, that you are faithful in your character and in all of your words. 
And Lord, we pray that even as we labor towards unity, that we would be so clear to remind ourselves and one another that your glory is what we aim for. Help us do these things according to your spirit. In your name we pray, amen.